not the religious type. Me? Shit, no, I've got a job. Look, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the rescue team gets here in four or five days. Six tops. You open the door, go in there with smart guns, and kill it. What have you heard from them? Nothing much. We got a message received. Later we got something that said you were top priority. They don't cut us in on much. They're the arse end of the totem pole out here. What if they don't want to kill it? They get back. No. They're lunatics, you know. Gotta kill it. Right? Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm thrilled that we have this next guest on. This is somebody who is very intimately tied to one of both of our favorite films of all time. And I I am really, really excited to talk about it with him today. So introduce him. This is Mr. Ralph Brown, whom you may know as Aaron from Alien 3 slash 85. Welcome, Mr. Brown. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're probably the first guest we've had on from Alien 3. I think you're probably the first cast member, the major cast member, because you have a, your role is very large in that film. Um, but we're going to get to that later. But so again, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your day. I know life is crazy. There's a lot going on even at home to speak with us. So I, I'm really excited. Like Patrick said earlier, this is my favorite Alien film. This is my favorite, one of my favorite fil- films of all time. I, I don't know how you are as an artist in terms of, well, this is the work and I do it and I go on and I move on. Um, often, sometimes artists are like that and they don't really carry their characters with them. Some of them mm-hmm. do, some don't. We'll get into that. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the business? What was that like? Well, I did a, I did a degree in law, um, which would be like college for you guys. So, you know, leave school at 18. I went on a, a one-year uh, gap year hitchhiking around the United States from New York to LA up to Vancouver and then across back to Montreal, New England. Uh, I was I was here for about four or five months, fell in love with America and have been back many, many times since and I now live in Brooklyn. Um, but I then went on to the London School of Economics to study law because uh, I was going to be a barrister. And I've spent most of my life since then wondering whether I should have done that. You know, uh, <laughs> It's what I call my ghost career. I've got a few ghost careers, and they run in parallel to mine, and I can glance across to the left or the right and see how, I was, see how I'm doing if I'd chosen to be a musician or a, a lawyer. And, um, but here I am in the middle lane as an actor. The reason why I'm an actor is because uh, I, at the end of that first year of law, I um, took a, a gig up in Edinburgh at the festival, um, with a company called the National Student Theatre Company and I auditioned for it and rehearsed it in London and then we all travelled to Edinburgh and we were there for three, four weeks. And every other person in that play uh, was at drama school. I was the only person who was studying anything other than drama. So they were all like, I was a kind of fascinating insect for them to go, so so, so what are you, you going to do then when you finish 
And I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I was like, what are you, what are you going to do? And I'm like, we're going to be actors, man. We're going to be, I was like, you can be an actor. It was like something I'd never <laughs> crossed my mind. It was a little bit like, I like to play football, soccer, and I played for the school and stuff, but I never considered it being a job. You know, I used to enjoy playing pool. I would never consider that being a job. And yet there are people who do those things for a living. <laughs> so it was a little bit like for me, it was a left field kind of, whoa, being an actor. And, and once I'd kind of considered it and met people who were determined to do it, I knew that was what I was going to do. It didn't happen for, for another five years uh, because I kind of delayed it because um, I felt like I wasn't quite ready in an image I had to put the blinkers on like for a horse race and not and be focused and prepared and be able to concentrate on on it as a career so I did I did mess about for for a long time before that but you know I was collecting life experiences I guess yeah but were you when growing up before you kind of formally became an actor was this something that you were into did you have a, an a special you know uh, affinity for film and theater or is this something that you just had an a, a, an aptitude for and you kind of found your way into it i think the second yeah. yeah i um i was very much into the natural world when i was younger i think my first thought of what i might do uh was was to be a zookeeper when i was when i was young and then when i was um i suppose uh, a teenager and starting to find out I, I was very into butterflies and I still am butterflies are my kind of secret passion so and then when I was at school I did I was very very good at geography and as a result I did a geology course which I really loved and I excelled at and I was kind of tempted to go into that as my degree but you know what I figured that if I got a very good geology degree I'd end up working for an oil company um which i did not want to do because because no to oil you know so um yeah i'm kind of i think i swerved a few kind of poor options early on with a bit of thought you know um but no there wasn't much drama for me it was sort of uh, messing around at school being in a school play i was in a school play when i was i think 16 that was the first, first, second time i was on stage first time i was in a nativity play when i was about nine <laughs> and i played joseph <laughs> joseph is not a good part <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't even get to say you're what you're, you're pregnant what are you talking about so you know <laughs> um so that that the bug was um in me, I enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed mimicking the teachers. We did these sketch shows at the end of the year uh, and we'd all pretend, we'd mimic the teachers who'd been teaching us all year. And it was, the school absolutely loved that, obviously. And I enjoyed that very much, but I'd never thought of it as a as a thing to do, to earn money. But um, once mm -hmm. I found those guys, it, it, it all fell into place. And I was, I felt really lucky to be able to earn, and I still do, to earn a living doing something I really enjoy doing. And that I, that I find actually, um, apart from self-tapes, which I can talk about later if you insist, but I don't really want to, that's the current mode of uh, auditioning, um, I find acting actually kind of quite easy. It comes to me very easily. Accents and changes and drama and just being truthful, you know, trying to convincing somebody that I'm telling the truth, even though I'm speaking somebody else's lines in a funny costume with a silly hat on I, I can generally convince people that what i'm saying is what i believe to be the truth yeah it's almost like magic you know it really is 
well, I thought most humans are quite good at that, I think, to be honest. That's <laughs> probably true, but we don't all get paid for it. <laughs> right, right. Um, I want to go back for a moment and then I hand it off to Jamie. Just to sort of uh, set up an entree before we get into the alien stuff, which is obviously, you know, especially why we want you here today. Um, you, I, I was, you know, we were looking at your IMDb page. For one thing, you've been in about 12 million more things than I, I think I even realized. Um, and I noticed that you were in things all the way back into the early 80s. So was that sort of, that was when you started getting cast in things and television, et cetera, and then it kind of snowballed from there? Yeah. Um, my first... Um... My first, my first ever gig must have been 1981, and then um, my first professional gig. And that was these are all theatre gigs, right? 1983, or maybe two. Anyway, I did I did a lot of theatre between 81 and 85, and then 1985 I did a TV series which was called The Bill, which is like a cop show, very gritty, handheld video, no rehearsal, just long takes. And uh, that kind of learnt my my screen trade there. Jumped ship after one series because um, it wasn't kind of varied enough for me, and I just had my my sights set on on movies. Really, I always wanted to do movies. Mm-hmm. I was a movie buff when I was a teenager, which I didn't tell you earlier because I was saving it. Um, <laughs> and I've always I started turning down theatre work in order to be available for film auditions, which is quite a big deal, really, if you think about it. Um, the, the idea of a secure job for three months in a theatre somewhere. For me, I was that was like something I really didn't want to do. It, it wasn't going to lead to anything else. It was just, and I, ne- I never did that. I think I, I did I did um, one theatre job, and that was that was Macbeth, and that was uh, the thing that put me off doing theatre for life until last year. Um, wow. But the rest of the time, I've devoted my career to to doing films, and then of course television comes in between and um, um, I'm, I'm proudest of all my movies I think than anything else I've ever done. That was my question in terms of the the English system I mean there's a rich history of theater and film for sure yeah. but in the American system is so is different it's obviously bigger how what was that like breaking through the system in in England to get cast in roles to be on the stage as opposed to trying to, okay, now I want to jump across and be in American films. I'm sure that there was crossover, but I was curious what that journey was like for you. Yeah, it seemed like such a long way away, you know, when I was young, the idea of doing a film in America, even though I'd traveled here and spent time, um, I didn't really have goals um, like, like that. I was just kind of going from, moment to moment pretty much um but i i was at the royal shakespeare company uh in london when um david fincher and his team came over uh to england to uh to cast and eventually to shoot alien 3 at pinewood and i absolutely loved the first film um i thought it was um truly brilliant piece of cinema um, combining two genres, one of which I was a big fan of, science fiction, and one of which I wasn't, uh, and still aren't, uh, horror. Um, so I, it, when I, I was in this play called Earwig by Paula Mill, and I had, I had my hair kind of long down to my shoulders in the show, and I was kind of like the romantic lead male. Um, 
And as soon as I got hold of the aud the audition notes for Alien, that was set in a prison and so on and so forth in outer space, sounded like a cracking idea. I went to my favourite barber shop in Soho in London and got my head buzzed, <laughs> my hair, and they were furious with me at the RSC. They were like, how dare you get your hair cut without asking us? I'm like, it's not your hair, you know. Um, so that was kind of the last time I was ever on stage, um, through my choice, really. But um, I look back now and I think, mm, maybe I should have done more theatre, other things, different things might have happened to me. But, I don't know, everyone, everyone's got a tendency to look back and wonder what ifs. But uh, I got that gig, you know, I got that... Um, that that movie as you know which is why why we're all here this morning and um it, it's funny looking back on the process that that made it happen i was so focused on on making sure it happened that i did that you know i kind of i kind of crossed the line at work i just i did something which i wasn't really supposed to be doing cutting off my beautiful golden locks <laughs> 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 and becoming a skinhead you know <laughs> So Alien 3 was the bridge film for you. It was a film that opened up other um, opportunities. I, I, That'd be right. Well, it was, it was, it was, it, I don't know about the bridge film. It, it was the first American movie. Okay. Um, yeah. So, it, and you know, and David said to me, you know, you've got to come to La La Land, Ralph. You know, and he actually encouraged me on many occasions to, to move to Los Angeles, which I, I did in 1992. Just after I got married, and, and and David and I hung out for the for the following two years, um, and uh, and so yeah, I guess that was that was crucial, you know, for for, always... uh, for my Hollywood for my Hollywood career. But the the film that really got me into doing Hollywood was with Nail and I, which was my first proper role in in British film, and it's everything that I've done has stemmed from that movie, actually, including Alien 3, because it was one of David Fincher's favourite films. He wanted all of us to be in Alien 3. Um, and the producer said, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's lazy or it's not done or it's not going to look cool or some, whatever the discussion was. They didn't want all of us with Nailers in Alien 3. Uh, but they got two of us, and there was only four of us, really, in it, and they got me and Paul. Um, Richard was uh, lined up to play uh, Clemens, the doctor, and uh, they vetoed it. They said, no, that's too many with nails. Sorry. Well, that that's, was pa that's Paul McGann, correct? Paul, Paul McGann, yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, he had his part cut considerably uh, by the studio when they recut the movie because that whole section in the middle with the fire uh, and Golic uh, getting out of his straitjacket and, and killing him. Um, Dobby Opera's character and going and asking the dragon what it wants, <laughs> and it and I think it eats him <laughs> in that version of the film. I think you've probably seen it by now. It was on the uh, it's on the DVD. Um, I was I was just thinking it's funny here from the outside, you know, looking at your filmography, it's clear that there is something that happens in 1992, right? Because in addition to Alien Three, you do Crying Game, which is a a, a really remarkable picture, which I I would like to just take a couple seconds to, to dive into, if that's okay with with Jamie yes. and with you. But also, um, you know, then Wayne's World Two and and all of this, you know, you just it really feels like 1992 is kind of a big moment. So from the outside. Part of me was kind of wondering what happened, and now hearing it from the inside, you you were in Los Angeles. You were working within that system more directly than ever, and I feel like it's clear because the the work you were doing was really, really great. Um, can we talk about the crying game for a moment, Jamie? Do you want to keep it off? 
No, that yeah, I I was fascinated. I, again, I rewatched it last night. Um, I had seen the movie when I was younger. When I came out, of course, I couldn't see it in the theater, and I, I, there was a lot of controversy about it. But I was curious. They were both released in the same year as Alien Three Ninety Two. Um, what was the like? What was the shooting schedule like? Of course, I think. Um, Oh, I almost called him Stephen Daldry, but that's not his name. The director who directed the picture. Mm -hmm. um, what what, Neil, what was Neil like, Jordan? Neil Jordan. Um, I'm thinking of Stephen Ray, who's in the film, obviously. Yeah. Um, what was the schedule like in terms of having two relatively large films come out in that year? Were, were you shooting back to back uh, or at the same time? No, not at all. Um, uh, Crying Game as I recall, was, was shot in the uh, fall of 1990 um, in London. And uh, again, it was a direct result of With Nail and I that I was cast in that. Uh, and I knew the producer, Steve Woolley, uh, because I used to work at a, a cinema in London called Scala Cinema, which was run by Steve and, uh, and Paul Webster and... and uh, Dominique Green and other people who are still my friends, really. And I was, a, I was, that was before I was an actor. I was just a law student, wannabe, hopeful monster, you know. Um, and that's another whole story. But uh, so Steve uh, introduced me to Neil, and Neil said, I think there's a role for you in, in The Crying Game. Do you like the script? And it was, for me, it was the best script I'd ever read, with the possible exception of With Nell and I, which is obviously. Um, standalone glory as a piece of work. Uh, but when I read The Crying Game, I, just, I was just like, I don't care what role I play in this film, I'm gonna be in this film. I would have done something with no lines because I thought it was that good. Um, and uh, so I, I was very lucky to be offered, but it was before Alien 3. Alien 3, was it? No, that can't be right, actually. I'm, I'm probably talking out my, it, it, it's, um, because you know why? Because I'm thinking of my hair and my long hair. It might have been, <laughs> it might have actually been after Alien 3. That sounds weird though to me. Um, it, they certainly weren't together. Alien 3 started in, in G December or January and went through five months around to about May of 1991. Um, and then it didn't come out for ages. So yeah, I suppose Crying Game could have been that fall of 91. Yeah, that would make more sense in terms of the haircut, which is one of the, of the few ways I have yeah, of kind of getting a handle. <laughs> you know. Obviously, my memory's not going to do it for me. Um, but yeah, no, the, separate, yeah, lucky me. It was, but it was, um, it was a great gig to go on to, and I have very, very fond memories of shooting that uh, movie. Uh, she, uh, the costume director Sandy Powell, who's a brilliant Oscar-winning costume designer wanted me to wear a suit she wanted all the guys in the film to wear a suit i i said i didn't think my character should wear a suit i wanted to wear uh sweats you know what, what we call a shell what we called a shell suit back then and um she she couldn't stand that idea but i said come on give us a give us a crack at it and i put one on and she took a photo of it and showed it to neil and he went yeah that's a really good idea so Sandy and me didn't really <laughs> take tea. And uh, how great would I have looked in a suit? You know what I mean? I haven't, I haven't always done things that, <laughs> that have sort of been good for my career, I don't think. But I just, try and, I just try and do what's right for that particular thing at that particular time, really. That's the only way I can 
get you know guide myself through a, um, a piece of work rather than thinking of am I going to look good or any of those stupid things um, which shouldn't really operate and which for me don't really operate. Um, so it's only in retrospect that you kind of think, hmm, I could have had a suit in that, <laughs> in that film. But um, no, I realised I kind of, you know, when I started working on it, I mean, I think the first day was, was in the pub with uh, Jim Broadbent and, um, and Dill and, uh, and Stephen Ray. And we all sat around and we read the scene. And oh, they were going to light it now and do this, this, you know, and see you in 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever. Neil Jordan sits down and he says to me, Ralph, the words are terrible. They're terrible. I don't know who wrote this, but I just can't stand it. And he had written it, obviously. He, written, he won the Academy Award for writing it, actually. <laughs> he did, indeed. And I said, I said, Neil, you know, chill out, man. The words are magnificent. You have to trust them now. You have to trust that when you wrote them, you liked them. Now you're directing them. You look at them and you don't like them, but you have to trust that what you were doing was good because here we are and we all think they're great. So, let it, you know, oh, all right, thanks, mate. You know, I just found that extraordinary. Do you know what I mean? That, that kind of tightrope he was walking. Um, but um, I, I, I sort of realised on that day that the function of my character was to convince um, the audience, along with the other things, that deal was a man. Uh, well, sorry, it was a woman. You know that, that it, I was part. I was part of the structure of the of the story, which would which would convince you that this was. And so, that it, in a way, the shell suit was was on my side because it's a very working class look, you know. Um, and the suit can be more androgynous, obviously, and in those days, more gay if you wanted it to be. Whereas the shell suit. In those days, certainly wouldn't have been gay. Although there certainly would have been plenty of gay people who looked like that. But, you know, I'm just saying in the in the culture, you know, uh, of London. Yeah, it was, uh, and we had lots of um, transvestite and what what would now be called perhaps trans people um, coming down, being extras and stand stand uh, stand-ins and uh, background artists. We were filming in a, a very famous uh, gay pub in Hoxton. Um, and it was a scene. It was a bit of a scene doing that film, to be honest. Mm. It was it was really cool. Well, it's held up. If any listeners who haven't seen The Crying Game yet, it's held up extremely well. It's 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 regarded as a classic. Again, it's Academy Award winning. It's the first thing I ever saw Forrest Whitaker in. I, I, I he yeah, was not somebody too. I knew about before that at all. Yeah. I saw it, you know, when I was a teenager, but I you know I didn't have any idea. Also, but James Broadbent, many people will recognize for many things, and Ralph Brown among others. Yeah. Really great. The pub, the pub was called the London Apprentice, by the way, for any. Um, Mm. Uh, older, older gays listening to the podcast in London. <laughs> They'll know the one I mean. I'm curious, like your character in this film. Um, I, as I was watching it, I was like, he seemed to really love her, but then there's a couple of scenes, of course, where he he's abusive, he's hitting her, he's demeaning her, but he seemed obsessed with her at the same time. And I felt a little bit, and you know, she would see him you know, driving by in the car from her balcony. And I was like, this guy really loves this, this woman. Like, and right. I, I, I almost felt like initially your character is almost this villain. And, but then I'm like, I don't think he's this villain. He's just a guy that's in love. He needs to be better behaved. But I was curious what your take on your character is or was. Sure. Uh, good. That's a good, um, good question. I, I felt that he was, um, 
gay uh, and he wasn't really um, telling any, anybody in his family or his friends that he was. So this was a very under the covers uh, relationship where he could be himself. And yes, he was in love and obsessed with, with Dill, um, with Jay Davidson. Um, um, but also there's a sort of self-hatred there mm-hmm. because he is from a culture where homosexuality is seen as weak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he, he, was, he was kind of like one of the lads kind of guy. And I, I think that part of him frightened him. And, and he expressed his self-hatred through abusing her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people's uh, feelings about themselves have to be pushed out onto, onto the nearest and dearest, you know, because uh, they can't own their own feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was how I approached it. At the end, certainly, you know, when your character eventually is gone, I, was, I didn't feel this, there's this turn that happens where I was like, ah, I feel a little bit bad for this guy. But I also felt like, obviously, Dill was hiding who she was, too. Um, she, mm-hmm. wasn't, she wasn't forthcoming with Ferguson or Fergus. Right. She had to, and so everyone was, he was hiding, everyone was in stages of hiding themselves from each other. No one mm-hmm. was really being forthright with it, with each other. And then when the truth comes, came out, the world kind of exploded after that. Because yeah, that's went, the first no time went, in the film. Yeah. 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 Uh, I thought it was very profound, but I, I just wanted to at least make a verbal note that I, I really felt for you the character that you play that he you could tell that he wanted to live a different life mm-hmm. and, uh, it, i think that's always a struggle being your authentic self um and that's what that film is about is being your authentic self and the only person who was really their authentic self was forrest whitaker's character he was his Indeed. authentic self yeah um, and he died for it and i he thought it was the price. Really, yeah. really great yeah I, I i yeah it's um everyone lives everyone leaves i mean i was thinking about a lot of things yesterday and came up with this cartoon, which I saw once in a newspaper, which said two cinemas next to each other. Cinema one has a film called um, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. And there's one person sort of standing outside. The cinema next door has a film called A Convenient Lie. And that one's got lines around the block. And, And that's sort of how we consume culture, I think, you know. And, and pretty much everything, you know what I mean? It, it, we construct this reality and, and, we, and we do it very carefully and we do it in lots of different ways. And the truth is something that we reject most of the time, actually. And it becomes an inconvenience and it becomes something that undermines us and something which makes us angry and um, so on and so forth, you know what I mean? There's an endless conversation to be had about mm-hmm. that, but uh, mm-hmm. it feels like that's what humans do all the yeah. time. And I, I've been of the opinion that everyone wants to know the truth unless it involves them right Uh, you know you want to watch documentaries you want to watch you want to know unless it involves you or the people that you know then you don't want much to do with it because it might incriminate you or cause you to live a more authentic life which i think people are afraid of doing um i I mean the whole whole, um media you know social media culture is is about constructing those those lies really about yourself much as anything What's so fascinating with social media culture is we're able to construct those lies and then really clearly communicate them to everybody else to reinforce those lies about ourselves too. At least from where I said, I feel like we construct these little alternate realities for ourselves. But in the past, it was kind of hard to broadcast that so effectively. But now it's like everybody sees each other's alternate realities and we find ways to merge them together. And it, it's yeah, it's an amazing time um, to be alive. I, I You said something a, a moment ago 
about you know having thinking about a lot of things yesterday. And I do want to make sure that we have a moment before we move into Alien, if it's okay, just to address your writing career, which which is which goes back quite a long way. This is something you've been doing um, for for years and years. You've won some pretty major awards for it, um, and you've written I think two rap musicals or co-written at least two rap musicals so if we could just before we move on for a few minutes if you can just kind of give us a little bit of a whirlwind tour of your writing and also let our listeners know if they're interested in, in finding more or reading more of your stuff where they can get it um that's a good question i have absolutely no idea where they can get it to be honest um they could rent um or maybe buy the one movie that i had made which is called new year's day came out in 2001 in the uk um, if you're going to write a movie, uh, I would suggest to anybody, young, young writers out there, um, find a really good title that nobody else has used before. You know, think about that really carefully. Like, for example, My Beautiful Laundrette, right? There's only one film called that. There's only one book, article, you know what I mean? New Year's Day, try Googling that, motherfuckers. You know what I mean? <laughs> really bad <laughs> title. <laughs> but it's quite a good movie. I'm very proud of it. Um, it cost me a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and nearly cost me my marriage. Uh, that's the stories about that are in my blog, uh, which is at uh, WordPress Magic Menagerie is my handle, um, and it's called My Pop Life, uh, written by Magic Menagerie. It's basically a look through my life, my career, my writing, my acting, my friends, my family, my mental illness. Uh, and my favorite t-shirts um so good luck with that um as far as writing goes um i got to the age of 29 and sort of panicked because i hadn't written anything that anyone had ever read and i just thought i'd always kind of considered that i was going to be a writer or i was a writer and then i realized that if i hadn't written something by the age of 30 then i clearly wasn't a writer so i immediately wrote a play about my family and other, and other animals called drive away the darkness and um, it's a kind of long day's journey into night uh, ripoff um, set in my family home. Um, that got a reading at the National Theatre and then nothing happened. And uh, I remember asking the director afterwards, like, so what happens next? He goes, well, that's up to you. It depends what you want to do with it. And I was like, well, put it on stage somewhere. You know, and he, he meant you need to rewrite this considerably. Um, and But he didn't explain how or what. He didn't give me any further signposts. And... Uh, Everything I've learned in life, I've had to find out for myself. I don't really had anything explained to me. And if I have, I've completely ignored it, um, like most people. So <clears throat> the next thing I wrote was a play for Joint Stock Theatre Company called Sanctuary, which was a rap musical about homeless teenagers in London, directed by my friend Paulette Randall. And uh, It was my first piece of writing. It was her first piece of directing. And uh, we toured England and... and um, I won the Samuel Beckett Award for Best First Play for that in 1987, which is a, uh, a prize which is jointly judged by Channel 4, um, the Royal Court Theatre and Faber and Faber um, publishers. And the play um, did not uh, get put on Channel 4, neither did Channel 4 commission me, neither did the Royal Court commission me, and neither did Faber and Faber publish it. But nevertheless... I still won the Samuel Beckett Award. <laughs> you still won the Samuel Beckett Award. I mean, take that, right? <laughs> so it was actually picked up by um, a Washington, D.C. company um, called the No Neck Monsters, and they talked me into uh, rewriting it and setting it in D.C., and I spent um, a couple of 
seasons in DC, having a look around and, and looking at the crack scene and the homeless scene. And it was kind of scary looking back on it. At the time, I was naive enough to be standing on street corners in the wrong part of town at kind of 10 p.m. asking people about their lives. And they're looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and I got into some pretty hairy situations, but my naivety got me through it. Um, I would never do anything like that now. But um, that um, got nominated for a um, handful of um, Helen Hayes Awards. Um, and I, I don't think we won any of them. Uh, I can't really remember. I think I'd have remembered if we had. Um, I then wrote another uh, rap play, which was all in verse, sort of rap opera for the BBC, and they didn't understand it. And uh, it's called The House That Crack Built. And uh, based on my experiences in DC, 1989-1990, somehow this was all going on at the same time that I was doing my first sort of handfuls of of movies and stuff. Um, And then... uh, Came to LA after Alien. Um, didn't work for a whole year in 1995 after Wayne's World 2. Ran out of money, had to go back to England. And was so full of fury at having not worked for a year, uh, despite having great reviews for Wayne's World 2, that I penned New Year's Day, the movie. I wrote it in two weeks flat. And uh, the story of uh, two boys who decide to commit suicide in one year's time on New Year's Day after they have completed a series of tasks which they both have to do. And that's basically how the film unfolds. Uh, That got made. I won a few film festivals with that, Rain Dance and Sapporo in Japan. The Japanese loved it. They asked me to write a novel based on the book. They asked me if they could adapt it for the stage. I've been to Tokyo three times now for productions of that play. I love Japan. It's just an amazing country. Um, Lucky me. And since then, I've been asked to write, I think, six films, none of which have been shot. One of one of which was halfway through and they pulled the plug. It's another whole story, which is also in the blog called Red Light Runners with uh, Michael Madsen and Roy Scheider and Peter O'Toole, an amazing cast. Um, oh, my God. Never got complete. And then the others, which have never just been, never been made. So I've never had anything made since 1999, 2001. So 20 years ago, really, since I got a movie made and I'm still writing them. And now and again, I just give up and think I can't be asked anymore to do that because um, I just can't, you know. I keep having these incredibly non-commercial ideas, you know, which nobody wants to make. Right. <laughs> just keep naming them after holidays for some reason. I don't know. Nobody wants to pick up. <laughs> I'm just not that interested in commercial yeah. stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not who I am. And I can only write what I want to write. I can't just force myself to write. Right. some formula stuff so anyway that's that's kind of that's my writing career in in a, in, in a three-minute run that's great what, what i find fascinating about sanctuary is you were doing hamilton before hamilton you were really yeah. at the forefront of this and now of course hamilton is the biggest thing ever um and i I, w- I was looking for a YouTube, maybe there was a YouTube performance of it somewhere i couldn't find anything but i just i like that you were ahead of that curve i mean i i the hip hop slash rap and just like world is ever changing. Um, and it is always kind of present. There's always, whether it's a, a, a commercial we're seeing or an audio commercial or something, it's always there. It's sort of the language of the downtrodden in some ways. Mm. And mm. uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda really keyed in on that. And I was yes, like, 
Ralph Brown was doing this before then. Um, and I don't know too much about the DC version, but I do think it's interesting. And uh, again, I think it's really the pulse of people without means. Um, this is uh, what black or white, like Hispanic or like, this is what really is the voice of people today. Yes. People really exactly feel Exactly that. And that, I mean, I was obsessed with it in the eighties, um, but, but we also chose it because we were dealing with street kids, you know, and, uh, and it was, it seemed to be there and it seemed to be to be an inherently dramatic form, you know, mm -hmm. apart from anything else. And of course it was, but I was amazed really after we'd done it, how little it was picked up. I mean, and how, and I, I kind of kept having to talk myself into being allowed to be, to, to do it as, as a white man. Um, and all, all my black friends in London were just like, get on with it, do it. You know, if you want to do it, do it. That, that feeling's just become even more um, now. Um, House that Crackbelt's never been made and it's still there in my bottom drawer alongside me. And, and, you know, I spoke to a couple of directors recently who were like, you're never going to get that made, not at the moment, you know, because you're, because you're white, you know what I mean? And it's, you, you, you're, you can't appropriate black culture in that way. And it's like we've suddenly kind of boxed ourselves into this position at the moment. Where race is more important than anything else, and um, but yeah, I, I went to see Hamilton with my wife um, at the Public Theatre in New York before it hit Broadway, and it was just a joy. It was just an absolute triumph. It was it was like a game changer. Uh, but I recognised a lot of the issues in it that I had when I was writing Sanctuary. A lot of the ways that you don't want to make it all sound the same, and and that you you work your way towards a rhyme, and then you do internal rhymes and you disguise stuff and. And, and sometimes the word, you're trying to avoid a word sounding like it doesn't sound. So that sometimes, you know, like saying, you know, because instead of because, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was, I absolutely loved it. Loved it. That is so cool. That's awesome. Um, for the sake of time, if I think I think we're ready, if we can yeah, launch into uh, Alien Three. So you took us back. So this was coming out of With Nail and I, correct? That was that was sort of your entree because David Fincher was a fan of the film. Um, can you take us back to the primordial days of this? So we we've done a we actually you know we now do these kind of extended series on the individual films as opposed to just sort of always bouncing around. And Alien Three was the first one that we did an extended series on because it was the one that we loved the most and the one that we had the least access to information on. And so we're like, let's spend like a long time and actually put something together to form some sort of a narrative of how this movie came to be. But mm. because you're the first cast member we've been able to speak to about it, um, from where you sat as an actor working in the late 80s, going into the early 90s, uh, meeting David Fincher, what was the casting process looking like and how did you get, how did you end up at Pinewood? So uh, I must have, I, I would imagine I'd have been working that evening uh, at the Barbican in London in this RSC play, Earwig. So my meeting would have been around lunchtime. I would have driven to Pinewood from where I lived um, in uh, Archway Road. I think I'd moved in there by then in Highgate in six. <clears throat> driven down. It's quite a long way, by the way, Pinewood. It's actually not in London at all. It's outside. So, so you have to leave like a 90-minute <clears throat> journey and then you get a parking slot and then you go up and wait and in the room were um Ezra Swerdlow and David Fincher and who was I reading with I had to read maybe I didn't read hmm maybe I did I th uh this is this is interesting because I can't actually remember reading anything it was just, maybe it was just a chat. 
I think, yeah, I think I only had one meeting. Maybe if I, if, okay, if I had two meetings that I'd have read and there would have been Patricia there to read the scene with me. Um, but yeah, I remember David telling me later that after I left the room, Ezra said, oh great, we've got that guy from Withnow coming in, in, in a minute, haven't we? And he went, that was him. And he was like, what? <laughs> because obviously I didn't. Because like, of the hair. Just had my hair cut, right. <laughs> right. Um, and all of that. So that was counting in my favor. I think I, think I maybe David called me, uh, or, or, or there wasn't email in those days, but somehow a message got through, phoned me. He said, look, we'd like, we'd like you, I'd love, love you to be in the movie, but, but have a read. I'm going to send you the script, read it, and then tell me which part you fancy. So it doesn't get any better than that, really. Uh, oh, that was my that. fantasy about how my career would end. Um, in fact, it was kind of how it started, and, and it's, it's not happening anymore, trust me. Um, but at least it happened. You know, it, it, it did actually, I could, I could sort of smell it. So I read it and I thought, hmm, hmm, yeah, Morse is quite a good part. And, you know, um, I quite liked quite a few of the parts, really, as it was then anyway. Quite fancied the Doctor. They said, no, no, not the Doctor, not the Doctor, you know. Um, so, yeah, Aaron was just the obvious one, really. He said, great, fine, it's yours, you know. Um, unbelievable feeling. Do you remember Eric. which version of the script you were looking at at that point? Was the, was this like the pre-final version that he was working on for shooting, or how did it differ significantly from what you filmed? Do you remember? You know what? I, I can't remember. But I know um, Vince Ward did did the first one, and I I think there were more inklings of that in it, but it changed. I mean, once we started shooting, it would change on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> right. As as I've said in the blog. Um, my death in particular was rewritten six times um, in, in really major ways. Um, different scenes, different types of dying. I mean, it, uh, it was incredible. And um, I think in the, in the version that I read, there were, it was a kind of a heroic death of some kind. And then, and then Sigourney got wind of David's plan to, uh, to make me a heroic character. And she was like, no, there's, that's not gonna happen. And so there was all that whole wow. issue wow. that happened. Um, so then it was like he just falls into the lead mold. Uh, the alien, you know, eats his head. Um, he gets burned in a fire. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've saved them all. I've got them. I've got those pages still. And um, and they would just get sort of shoved under your dressing room door in an envelope, and you'd open it and you go, "Oh, I'm okay." <laughs> um, I mean, it was just it's just incredible. I'd never I'd never worked like that in my life. Um, it's not as unusual as you'd think um, for people to still be writing and messing about with a story when they're shooting it. And, you know, even actors get involved as well and they start saying, oh, let's not do that. Let's do this and so on and so forth. And it depends on what state it's in. And it's funny filmmaking because sometimes you can, you can be doing a script like The Crying Game where one person's written it and it's just their vision and that's it, you know. But in Hollywood, that's very, very rare. Um, I mean, Aaron Sorkin springs to mind, but often a lot of them are are kind of, you know, you look on the front page and it says written by, and there's six or seven or eight names there, you know, because it's been passed around and rewritten and reshaped and another director gets on board suddenly and they give it to their mate to have a go at it and that name gets added. And so it becomes this kind of um, 
thing that gets passed around and you get get it eventually and you're supposed to bring it to life so you start having a go at it yourself as well you know um so yeah it was it was changing it was changing all the time um pretty soon after that got invited to pinewood uh one evening after they'd finished working and the a lot of the designs um were, were being built some of them were finished and so david um and Ezra and his PA um, and Sigourney and I think Charles Dutton was there. Charles Dance <clears throat> and yeah, there was about six of us. And he walked us around and showed us all the sets. So we had quite a big tour of the whole studio and showed us what well, this is what this seems this is this area is going to be like this and he was kind of really excited you know david was young he he hadn't directed a movie before he he had sort of this whiz kid reputation because of his commercials um and uh, worked with nike and madonna and people like that and uh i i've got a feeling that the people who ran the franchise thought that you know he was a visual guy who'd make the film look amazing but who basically do what he was told, and of course that wasn't the case at all. He's a very bright, very singular kind of character, um, and he once he took the reins, he wasn't going to let anyone else have a go. And there was big battles between him and Michael London. Um, I think there was more respect between him and, and uh, Walter Hill and David Geiler, who were also in London and with whom I had a run-in. Um, but... Um, yeah, the first big um, rewrite for me came when they added the 85 idea, uh, which certainly wasn't in the first couple <laughs> of scripts. Right, right. Uh, that came after we'd started shooting, in fact. I'd already shot uh, two scenes, I think, with Brian Glover and, um, and Sigourney and, and, uh, and Charles. And, uh, and then suddenly... David had had me in the office and he had, he kept getting me into the office and was talking about his ideas of like, look, um, people, people aren't going to identify with, um, with Ripley in, in this film so much because she's got one, uh, you know, in the words of the prophet, she's got one inside of her. So, so that they're going to understand that she's going to die at the end of the film. That's kind of written. It's a sort of, sacrificial it's a bit like the new testament you know there will be a death at the end and the audience will get that as soon as that moment happens and so therefore we have to give them a character that, that they can root for because they can't root for her in the same way if they know she's going to die they have to root for some poor sod in this story and it's going to be you you know and i was like fine he said so we're going to do this this and this and you're going to have a family and you're going to be thing and then and sigourney found out about that and she just was like, that isn't going to happen. Um, and I got summoned to um, a meeting at, well, then the 85 came in as a rewrite, and 85 IQ, and that was the joke with the prisoners and thing. And I was like, it just felt like, um, for me, it felt like a sort of sabotage um, of what I was doing. And I had already started work, and I hadn't got a character together who was going to be able to sell that idea. So I was going to have to stick to more or less what, unless they were going to offer to reshoot those bits, which they didn't. Um, you know, if I if, if that had been in it from the beginning, you know, I could have done a Tom Hardy type uh, 
Elvis Presley, like kind of like sort of one of those guys who just talks like that and who's pretty charismatic, you know. You know what I mean? And I didn't have that. It was like thrust right in the middle of shooting. And so I said, no, I'm not doing that. I just said, no. So then Walter and David summoned me to their, to their house in Holland Park and, and said, Ralph, what do we got to do to make you understand that this is going to be the way it goes? And I said, <laughs> well, I said, Walter, <clears throat> Walter had these shades on, right? He's like a scary motherfucker. But I later learned that he has some kind of cataract issues and that the shades were not to scare people or to make him uh, look cool. It was because his eyes had a, an issue. Anyway, I didn't know that. I just thought they were trying to intimidate me, which they kind of were. And um, But they were trying to do it in a nice way. You know what I mean? And he was like, so I, and I, I, I think the first or second thing I said was, um, okay, this is my negotiating position, guys. I have no negotiating position. And they just laughed because they knew that was true. See, and at the same time, all of us Brits uh, in particular who were in the movie were, were like passing around stories of what had happened on aliens. Um, and in fact, Walter did, did actually mention that. He said, you don't want to end up like, uh, you don't want to end up like, uh, I can't remember her name now, but there's one of the, no, in the first film, was it? One of the, one of the women, one of the actresses was heavily cut from one of the films. Uh, he's like, don't you don't want to end up like her, do you? You know, wow. it was it was like that. <laughs> it's like a mafia uh, meeting or something. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I was like, my negotiating position is I have no negotiation. They found they found that funny, um, but but we knew that people. One of the actors on Aliens had been sacked. That was also shot in Poland because he was caught taking LSD while while it was being shot. Uh, I don't know who it was. I would tell you if I knew. I don't know who it was and. Um, they were replaced, and he'd already done at least six weeks of shooting, and they reshot every single scene that he was in with a new actor. So we knew um, that even up to six weeks, we could be sacked. Any of us could be sacked, because they look at the rushes, they look at the dailies and go, yeah, he's not any good, is he? He's, a fucking, he's useless, that one. So should we, get another, should we get another guy for that? So everyone's under that. Everyone's under that all day. So... Yeah, it's a horror film. Yes, it's a horror film. So we've all got to feel paranoid every day. You know, and then Linda um, Sigourney's makeup artist was in an accident with one of those Star Trek doors just fell down onto the bridge of her nose and broke her face open. And, you know, it's a horrible film sets are dangerous um, places, you know, and um, somebody, you know, it's just a bit of wood with a, with a weight on the, on the end of it or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's, it looks great, but actually it's just a bit of wood. And she was standing in the doorway. The horrible things like that happening and um, making everybody just feel jittery and and then Sigourney was the was the heart of it you know Sigourney was the paranoid person in the middle of it who had a shaved head looked herself in the mirror every morning and 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 didn't like what she saw you know and and that had to, that feeling was the one that she gave me and anyone else who was um, near nearby really she was doing it to Charlie Dance as well we find we found out a few weeks into the shoot. Um, which was a great so source of solace for me because I felt very lonely. And I would tell my fellow actors, and they, they all thought I was completely crazy and paranoid and making it up. And I was, she's lovely, Ralph. What's wrong with you, man? She's gorgeous. You're just being paranoid, mate. And I was like, and I'd never worked on a Hollywood film, so I didn't really know what to expect. But I really thought I was, I thought I was sinking, you know, I really did. I thought, this is, this is whatever it's, and I found out Richard E. Grant, who's in with now, 
he was working in Italy somewhere and I said, I'm having a really bad time on this film, Rich. He said, how much are you getting paid? I said, I'm getting 40 grand or whatever it was, I can't remember. He goes, you've got to eat 40 grand's worth of shit then. <laughs> that was his helpful, <laughs> helpful guidance. From great, great. I believe Confucius actually came up with that. I think it was way back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, things settled down after the after the Guyla Hill meeting and, and, and the 85 was in and I just started. I just kind of played it the same as I've been playing it, really. Because I didn't have much choice, I didn't want the. You know, I didn't want those two scenes I'd already shot to stick out. Like, who's that guy? Why is he different from the other? You know, it was kind happened of to a weird thing. Right. It was a weird thing, and, and Sigourney carried on the the, uh, the kind of low level uh, guerrilla warfare to to put me off my acting and stuff. Um, was she doing oh, is that? that? Is, is that how you're going to say it? Is that is that how he's going to say it? Like that kind of classic wow. nonsense, you know. Wow. Uh, we look like two bookends. Are you, are you slouching? How come your costume is so clean? We're all dirty. How come you've got your hair? We, we all, we're all bald. And Brian Glover, the, the lovely Yorkshireman who was my boss, like, executive dress. You know, he always had a good one-liner to fuck her off, you know. <laughs> but um, I remember telling Paul McGann one day, I said, I'm having a bad time with Sigourney. She, she keeps trying to undermine me and wind me up. And... And, uh, and she walked over and she went, oh, look, a little tete-a-tete between Mr. Sublime and Mr. Ridiculous. I'll leave you two guys to work out who's who. And she walked off and Paul went, she's going the right way for a smack in the mouth. <laughs> Which is, uh, he was more relaxed about, he pulled more relaxed about everything than me, you know. I always take it on and uh, try and analyse it and try and work out what's going on. But yeah, I used to go home every night to my wife and go, uh, I just want to curl up in a ball and, and and get shot into space. I'm not enjoying this gig at all. And wow. Brian, you know, would be would be up would be on a you know that circular fan with all the the meat of a dead person inside it, and Glover would be there and go, "Would you go? This is a bit gruesome, isn't it? This is a bit, this seems a bit nasty, you know." And Brian would be like, "Or oh, we could go to Baghdad and see the real thing." Because <laughs> that. <laughs> Because that wall was on at the time, right, you know. Right. Um, wow. Yeah, and then once I once I started chatting with Charles Dance, and everything became a bit clearer, and I started realizing that it wasn't about me really. I was just there. It was about her, and um, and he was getting the same kind of um, thing, and we just sort of cheered ourselves up a bit and just got on with it. Really, was her behavior in any way trying to inform the actual story, or was it just? It was a shitty behavior. Like, I, I remember just hearing stories about the original Alien, and certainly in Aliens where they had uh, Yafet Kodo really antagonize Sigourney Weaver so that antagonism would come out when they started shooting so that mm. there was this thing between them, and it was really effective. And I was curious if you think that was part of it. Yeah. No, I hear that. Um, I don't agree with it because as an actor, okay. I, believe in, I believe in acting. And uh, I think if you're trying to antagonize somebody in real life so that they're antagonistic towards you on set, then you're a bit stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if it's written down in, uh, properly in the scene, you should be able to act it. You know. And I do believe in acting as a, as a craft. Um, but no, I mean, uh, Aaron and, uh, and Ripley are supposed to get on. In, in the story. Um, I mean, the 85 thing, yes. I mean, that, that may well 
have been um, to further the story. So I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on that particularly. It's just the way it was done. Um, but the idea of just um, asking me how I'm going to read a line while I'm actually reading the line um, is is just kind of instinctive and brutal. And there's one there's one scene in in the film where there's just the two of us and we're we're, we're assessing something or other. I, I had a lot of scenes with just me and her, uh, and on the whole, they're like, what should we do type scenes? What should we do now type things? Because Brian Glover gets killed early on, and so I become in command. And um, so we're both kind of vulnerable people, really, at that point in the story, and that sort of works, but we're not antagonistic towards each other. But um, there was one thing when I said something, and she had to answer with something like, um, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, or something like that. And every time she said it, it was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And David was like, okay, let's do one more. She goes, no, 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 that is a good idea. Yeah, okay, just that is a good idea. That's a good idea. One more. We did 39 takes of that until she got so tired. She just went, yeah, that's a good idea. And David went, got it, print it, good, let's all go home. My God. And, then, and then two years later, doing ADR in L.A., uh, automated dialogue replacement because it was a very noisy set lots of steam and lots of uh, stuff like that David said if I'd known about ADR then I wouldn't have done 39 takes on that one scene just for a line reading because we could just do it in the studio afterwards you know um, so he was he, that was his his kind of learning curve but um, yeah she could she kind of developed this hostility towards me that she kind of couldn't disguise in on set and it wasn't to serving the story at all um, and David had to work around it. And he came up to me, he was very he was very sweet. He came up to me after one scene and said, look, she vampired that scene off you, Ralph. He said, but I can cut it together. I can make it work. He said, but anytime you need me, you've got to call me out and I'll let you. I see what's going on. I see exactly what's going on. You're not on your own. I'm here. My um, sanity, really, because I thought I was going mad. I mean, she apologized afterwards, by the way. I don't want anyone to think that we're that we're now sort of sworn enemies. And she she said sorry, and she thought, I've done a great performance and everything else, but, you know. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that's good to know. It's, it seems yeah. like, it seems I don't, like I don't want everyone to get depressed, obviously, listening. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just basically share my experience of making that movie, and that's... Yeah, yeah. That was it seems like that was a lot of people's experience of making that film. The tension was just uh, off the charts the whole time for all sorts of various reasons that existed long before you showed up to the set, and I think permeated everything all the way through post-production. You know, it seems like a very yeah. stressful... And I think David and Sigourney both took that tension into themselves, do you know what I mean? And yeah. had to live on a day-to-day -day basis with it. And then some of us that were close to those two people sponged it up as well because, yeah. you know, that's what happens. But um, I thought that happened on every film, of course. I was like, this is, you know, with <laughs> now and I wasn't like that, by the way. But, you know, on Hollywood films, I thought, well, this is what Hollywood films are like, you know. And Richard kind of confirmed that with with his kind of crack. And it, that's not the case either, you know. But I've worked on... I've worked on quite a few Hollywood films, which are pretty weird vibes, mm. you know what I mean? So it's not entirely out, out of the ordinary either. What do you want to say? Tell them the whole place has gone toxic. Are you kidding? Then they won't come here. The rescue team will turn back. Yeah, I know. What are you talking about? Our only hope is that they kill this fucker. And maybe they can do something for you. I don't know. They freeze you. They can do an operation. They've got the technology. This organism gets off the planet, it'll kill everything. The company doesn't care about that. They just want it for their bioweapons division, okay? So we can't let them come here. Fuck you. 
Look, I'm sorry you've got this thing inside you, but I'm getting rescued. I don't give a shit about these stupid prisoners, but I've got a wife. I've got a kid. I'll go home on the next rotation. No, this is hard. I'm going to send this message back. And I need that fucking code. I'm sorry, babe. It's classified. Listen, you stupid little shit. This has got to be done, okay? There are no alternatives. You're not getting it. No fucking way. I think uh, interesting about your character in terms of like the the attitude of no, we don't want to give this give Aaron a, a heroic death. You but you did. You had a, a bit of a heroic death. You saw something was wrong. Obviously, you it it you made a decision. It ended your life, but it was a heroic way to go. And he yeah. was a very sympathetic character. And I I also find it strange that people uh, the person who said people aren't going to identify with Ripley like. People identified with Ripley, with Aaron, with Dylan, with Clemens. There was a lots of uh, connections being made with these characters um, mm -hmm. because it's just it's the human experience, it's the human condition. I agree. Um, yeah. So she might have looked like everybody else in terms of her shaved head and what she was wearing, but we were there with everyone. Like, mm -hmm. and because there's this big reveal, which is we we aren't each other's enemy. The company is the enemy. And then mm. everyone coalesced around that reality. Um, so it was just interesting that someone would say, people aren't going to be with Ripley to you. Like you can't, you can't be sympathetic. Um, Cause that's not how it plays out, but. That's, that was Fincher's um, analysis of the, uh, of the, of the trilogy at, you know, at that point. Hmm. Um, and he, he, he was unnerved by the, or we thought he was, or thought he was ahead of the game, I suppose, in in trying to predict what the audience might have, the audience might react to the knowledge that she's um, kind of pregnant with a baby alien, pretty much, you know. Um, and uh, hey, you know, it was it was like everyone was sharing was sharing feelings and experiences. Uh, I think it was David's idea to have me. Uh, you know, try and have a go at Lance Henriksen at the end. I think that was the the compromise that that was made in the end. And mm -hmm. you know, in the, it was just those first few first few months which were just extraordinarily weird. And then it just settled down. You know, it just settled down into 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 work. You know, um, for for um, units running uh, alongside each other. All of the actors called in every day, put through makeup, wardrobe sit on standby in your dressing room play backgammon listen to sort of off-color stories and um and then oh ralph you wanted on fire unit and you'd go out and you'd shoot for half an hour and then you'd go back to your dressing room and there was months of that months um and then there were reshoots in los angeles as well um and How then long did you know, shoot oh go ahead sorry five months it was a five month shoot and um at the end of it uh david invited um a, a group of us, um, Danny Webb, me, Charlie, Paul, um, Rock Dutton, um, and Sigourney, I think, was there. Or maybe she'd gone back home by then, but she, he invited us to a screening, and he'd put a lot of Aaron Copland music over it because he hadn't got, got a score yet, but he'd done his, his cut. He had his final cut, and it was the full cut. And he'd said to me when, when we were shooting, he said, um, I'm, he said I'm they're, I know they're going to try and cut it. They're going to take it off me and try and cut it. He said, that's why I'm doing long tracking shots because it's very difficult to cut into a long tracking shot. 
um, and that's why I'm doing it. So he's he was kind of over prepared in a way. He was mentally kind of like mm. on the defensive about almost everything to do with everything, like in terms of the story, the characters, the actual mechanics, the camera. You know what I mean? He was absolutely. He felt like they only wanted him for a few good shots, and then they were going to just make the cut, have it and start. I can understand him wanting to direct it. I can also understand him deciding to say, no, actually, I don't want that. I don't want that gig. But having decided to take it on, he was then put in that position. He's a bright guy, you know. And he showed us his cut, which was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, I have, I, I, you know, I think he knew it was as well. And I, of course, the one that came out wasn't that. And the one that Alex Thompson uh, put together also wasn't that it was nearer because it had that missing section in it but um there was just something about that cut that i was just very very proud of on his behalf really um and he kind of stopped talking about it you know like he didn't want to talk about it anymore once that cut had been made and we may have had one or two drunken conversations about it in los angeles but but on the whole he just kind of turned his back on it and walked off and he's never looked back on it and he, we've never talked about it since Wow, it's amazing. Um, it's it's just neither here nor there, but it's interesting you mentioned that they were using um, Aaron Copeland for temp scoring because, of course, he was one of Elliot Goldenthal's instructors at the Manhattan School of Music. So it's a little bit of small world <laughs> trivia yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah. There's a scene, a scene that you mentioned um, a little while ago that I think might have been the scene that I actually wanted to ask you about. So I apologize in advance if it's kind of a painful scene to talk about. But um, I, there's a moment with your character that I just really love because I think it's a very human moment. And it's when Ripley is trying to uh, get a quarantine order, right? To prevent the commandos from coming. And you are refusing to cooperate um, with that. And this is after you've basically helped her discover the gestation situation. You know, you've had this very kind of human moment with this woman who you've been pretty antagonistic with throughout the whole film. And it's actually a very kind of human thing. And, and, you, and the conversation escalates quite a bit. And you bring up the fact that you have a family. You bring up the fact that you're not going to allow her to do this. Um, and she walks all the way down this long corridor of some kind and is basically whispering to you. And, and you're all the way back and you're not picking up on her metaphor. And I just, for, for some, that, that, that sequence to me, has always stuck out as one of the strongest in the film. And I think a lot of it is because of the chemistry that you have with Suborny in that scene and this and this fact that your character is playing through a lot of different strata of things, right? Because like you are at the end of the day, a company person, right? Like you're somebody who's there to do a job. You're also somebody who exists outside of Fury 161. You're somebody who's waiting to go home for very mm -hmm. specific reasons, right? And you're somebody who doesn't get to make it there. And that's something that as a father watching this, I I'm always really haunted by um, the fact that you never got to go home to see your, your children, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I just, I did the way that that scene unfolds is really amazing. So, so a, I guess my question is, is that the scene you were talking about? Because I'm assuming there was ADR for when she was down the hallway. Oh no, it's not. Okay. Mm. Um, and can you take us back just to when you were shooting that and what was going through your head? Cause it's just a great scene to me. I wish I could, you know, Patrick, but I cannot remember shooting that scene. <laughs> really at all? No, wow. no, I can remember the lines. I can remember I've got a wife and kids. Um, I think that was later on, I have to say, because I think I was, um, I just think I was more confident then about what I was doing. And I knew that I had the backing of David to, to sort of, you know, do my best work really if I could. So I think that was probably one of my better, better scenes to be honest, mm. but I can't really remember what happened on the day or how that, the technical aspects of it, I'm sorry. Have you got any ideas? 
It won't kill me. I'm carrying the new queen. It won't kill its future. You really want to bet this thing's that smart? <clears throat> Maybe I'll go find it. See how smart it is. You're gonna go and look for it? Yeah. I have a pretty good idea of where it is. It's just down there. In the basement. This whole place is a basement. <laughs> it's a metaphor. What's interesting about that scene, though, is Sigourney or Ripley as a character, she's taken control in all of her movies, whether it's with an alien, she ends up having to assume control of the Nostromo or whatever, and then an alien, she assumes control again because it's kind of given to her, like, we don't know what else to do, you're the best person for the job, let's do it. But she's always been very like, okay, we got to get this done. And there's this one scene in Aliens where she takes Burke up and she goes, do you have any idea what you've done here? She throws him against a wall. But there's a moment where she does this with Aaron, but it doesn't work. Obviously Aaron isn't Burke. He's a much better guy. He's not like skeezy. Um, but I, I've always found it where it has worked for Ripley each time where she's taken control. She's been physical with men, which is very interesting. You don't see that very often in film. <laughs> she gets physical with Aaron but she can't overpower Aaron. She can't. She doesn't. Uh, Aaron could give her that power, but he didn't. He assumed control. And I thought this hadn't happened in an alien film before where Ripley is really saying, hey, this is what we have to do. And usually people are like, okay, we're going to do it. With Aaron, he was like, sorry, this isn't happening. And that's that. And you could tell the frustration that she had with your character from that point on where she wanted to do something and he wasn't going to let her do it. And I really find that, that exchange, it's an exchange of power mm -hmm. um, and it's a relinquishing of power because she has none. Um, yeah. I, I, found, very, I found it really powerful. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I think that's in the script. Um, and I think it's a deliberate and, and kind of smart uh, sort of rewrite of, of the other, you know what I mean? It's like they're taking mm -hmm. it to the next level and it's like they, they don't want to show the audience something they've seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to keep unfolding something else and keep taking them in a, in a place where they feel uncomfortable really and and they don't know what's going to happen next. So it's mm -hmm. sort of unpredictable and I think that's, I think that's what that is. Ironically. as a... Well, just quick, it, it functions almost as a pre-death of Ripley, I think, in a way, because we start to see her as we saw her back in the first film in the beginning when she was, you know, going up against Ash with the quarantine orders and things like Like we're seeing her actually having ceded some of that power to a degree. And I think as an audience, we're kind of preparing ourselves like this actually is real. This is the actual end. This is where things come. Um, and it doesn't happen with a bang and it doesn't happen with a whimper either. It happens with something very subtle and very in the middle which is it's it's a human conundrum right like her doing that will doom everybody basically um for the sake of this of this righteous mission that she's on to exterminate this organism um and you just want to go home and and what i love about aaron and something that i've always really appreciated about this character is that he's not a uh he's not an idiot he's a little simple he's a little kind of just like outside he's not he's not cutthroat he's gotten to where he is probably because he's just kind of 
good at his job and he goes with orders and he doesn't really ask too many questions about it, but he's not nefarious, you know? And for so much of the rest of the series, we see we see Weyland-Yutani as this very kind of malevolent entity, right? But the reality is that a lot of people who contribute to malevolence are usually not even aware that they're doing that. A lot of people are just sort of doing their job to provide mm-hmm. for their wife and kids back home and they're on assignment and they're going to come back from Baghdad and they're going to come back from that airstrip and they're going to forget what happened. They're going to go to work the next day and they're going to take their kids out to the picnic. But um, what Aaron provides us as an audience is a humanizing moment, not just for Ripley to play off of, but also for the corporation and for seeing this thing as something more than just this, you know, this monolith, because it's not, and evil is never that simple, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so your character, I think, is a really interesting um, avatar for that, for the audience. Well, he has something to lose, you know. Yes, yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I, um, I think they needed a character who had something to lose, because none of the other characters really did. Yeah. <laughs> especially not the cult in the prison um and the doctor maybe was the other character who had something to lose i think but then he gets he gets killed incredibly early really if you think about it i I think we all felt that maybe the doctor should last a bit longer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the story for that for that reason but i I think they enjoyed and the i mean my other criticism of the film was at the time and i think i haven't seen it for a while but i always felt we never got to know um enough of the prisoners well enough to really mourn their deaths you know and i i do think that's a rule of cinema that if you're gonna um if you're gonna kill characters if it's a kind of a slasher type movie at least on one level if you if you care about those characters every death is going to count i mean the classic film that does this is unforgiven where every single death really matters you mm-hmm. know really is like a real horrible lingering slow death um and that death itself is is the sort of powerful extra character in the film. Whereas if you just go bang, 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 and people fall over, and they fall over, you just think that's kind of cheap. And I think it's a, there's a danger in those alien films, especially three, I think. Well, all of them, apart from the first one. The first one has a very small, a small and very intimate a cast, and that's why it works very well. And the second one has this kind of bang, 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 bang. And we are somewhere in between those two, and, and you do get to see them and uh, uh, those characters, and you do get glimpses of them, and everyone gets a little couple of moments. But I, I suppose, I always felt like more want to see more of those guys, so that when they die. Well, I know we're going to wrap shortly. I, I have one final question before we go, um, Jamie. Do you have anything else you want to? Yeah. Well, I just thought as I was thinking about when we first started talking, you were talking about being in the nativity when you were nine years old, uh, a play, <laughs> and here you find yourself an alien three sitting next to Sigourney Weaver and it's a similar situation. She's pregnant and she doesn't know how, and you don't know how either. And so there you are again in, in a very similar role um, in, in a form of the new Testament where Jesus dies at the end. Um, I just thought it was, it was, it's great symmetry. Uh, You're a funny guy. <laughs> uh, I, I would suppose my final question is what do you think of the film? Very proud of it. Very, very proud of it. It's my favorite of, of uh, all of them. Um, I I love how difficult it is as a film. Um, I've I've heard the theory, and I, I would subscribe to the theory as well that each film uh, really guides us through American history of the late twentieth century. Um, the first film is the the Watergate film. Um, and it's the it's the company. You know, the company is the enemy, not the not the enemy, not Russia. Um, and the second film is the uh, the kind of the end of the empire, really, um, 
Grenada. You know, Reagan goes into Grenada with the entire force of the US military in this tiny little island, which has uh, really no army or navy to speak of. Uh, and Alien 3 is AIDS. Uh, it's inside you, you know. It's actually perfect for COVID-19. And, um, and it's just a sort of haunting, a haunting film. And there wasn't anywhere to go after that, uh, you know, for me and for a lot of fans of Alien. There was a fourth one, of course, which which is, is watchable, you know, but um, and then there was Alien Predator and other, other kind of video games or whatever. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I, I, I sort of subscribe to that, to that theory, really. And um, I like how, how thoughtful it is, really. I like how bleak it is and how close to reality it tries to be, given the circumstances. And I think it's a lot of its power comes from from that, and of course from Finch's instinctive and and uh, magnificent use of, of of cameras and 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 his sensitivity as a director, which has been pro proven since then. You know, he's one of the greats, and uh, I'm I'm very lucky, very lucky man to to have spent time with him and and to have been directed by him. I think that's a marvelous place to, to stop. I think that's yeah. a wonderful reflection. Thank you so much, Ralph Brown, for being here with us today, for giving us so much of your time in the middle of a busy workday during a crazy year in the twilight of a year that we'll never forget. And, yeah. um, and joining us and being so open and so eloquent. And uh, and thank you for everything. And thank you for making one of my favorite films. It came out when I was seven and I've watched it maybe 300 times since then. And every oh. single time I do, I you know see you up there and I appreciate you. And you are in many of our hearts an alien fandom out there. And, and this means a lot to me. Thank you very much. Bless you, Patrick. Thank you for inviting me. And um, thank you for listening to my miserable story. No, I would echo those sentiments. I think for myself, I would not have survived my teenage years without Alien 3. I was a teenager when it came out. And it, I was went through a very, very dark time. And I, everybody who knows me knows this. So to talk to someone who was involved in uh, a movie that essentially saves your life in a way, it's a powerful thing. Movies and stories are powerful. We all know this. I echo Patrick's sentiments. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.